Open your Bible, if you brought it this morning, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, we are going to dive right into our series called The Essential James. We are reading through the entire book of James over a six-week time period. And so today we are reading James chapter 2, which I'm going to warn you now, buckle your seatbelt because we are going to be moving quickly. We got a lot to cover and a short amount of time to do it. Uh, But before we get into James chapter 2, I want to remind you of our concept for this series. What is our theme verse? What are our three goals? Well, our theme verse actually is found in James chapter 1, verse 25, and it says this. It says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So we pulled three goals directly from this verse because we all want to be blessed, man. Everybody wants to be blessed. We want to be blessed in our relationships. We want to be blessed in our finances. We want to be blessed in our time with God. We want to be blessed in our parenting. We want to be blessed in our marriages. Everybody in this room wants to be blessed. And so James tells us how to do it. How does it happen? Well, number one, Goal, if we want to be blessed, we're going to look intently into the Word of God, or specifically this series, look intently into the book of James. It says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. In other words, we're not just looking at the verse of the day, finding a little encouragement for 30 seconds, and then moving on. We're going to take some time. We're going to take 10, 15 minutes and set it aside and look intently into God's word. Set aside from distractions. Set aside from everything else that's going on in life. We're going to make room and believe that God can actually speak to us through his word. Believe that we can actually be closer to him if we give him some quality time. So that's our first goal. Our second goal right after it, we're going to continue looking intently into the book of James. It says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it. In other words, we're doing something very different this series. We are challenging everybody to read one chapter every day. And so we're not reading James 1 yesterday and James 2 today and James 3 tomorrow. We're reading James 2 all last week. We read through James 2. And the challenge this week, we'll get to it in a minute, but we're going to read James 3 every day this week. Why? Because James says there's a benefit, there's a blessing when I continue looking intently into the word of God. My wife and I were talking about this last night as we read, like, how much new stuff pops out at you over the, over the week. That, man, at the beginning of the week, I was noticing this in this chapter, but by the end of the week, I'm noticing this. God's speaking in a different way, in a different angle. Something new has grabbed me that maybe I wouldn't have seen if I would have only read it once or only read it twice. But the benefit of reading it day after day after day, of continuing to look intently into the word of God, is that it's now starting to speak to me in new and deeper ways. And then finally, our third goal for the series is we are going to do what the book of James says. He says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They will be blessed. In what they do. See, the blessing doesn't come simply from reading God's word. The blessing doesn't come simply from continuing to read God's word, although I believe there is a blessing just at that level. But the greatest blessing on your life and on my life is when we put it into practice, when we allow God's word to change us. Just a few verses before this, James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The blessing is in the doing. And so as we go through this series together, as you're reading throughout the week, as I'm speaking on Sunday morning, my challenge for you is to look for the application. 
What is God speaking to you that you can begin to put into practice in your daily life? So our challenge this week, very specifically, is we are going to read James chapter 3 every day. Man, whether you're a member here, whether you've been here from the beginning, this is your 12th fall festival and you've been doing it from day one, uh, or this is your first time here, my challenge for you is to get your Bible, read James chapter 3 every day. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some up here. We'd love to give you one for free at the end of service. But there's no excuse for anybody in here. Man, you can take 10, 15 minutes. You're going to have to carve it in. You're going to have to schedule it. You're going to have to plan for it because if you let it just happen, it probably won't. But every day this week to read James chapter 3. And then if you're an overachiever, uh, if you're at that place where, man, I'm hungry for, for more, I would read the proverb of the day in conjunction with that. So whatever the date is, you're going to read that Proverbs, I believe today is the 25th, so you're going to read Proverbs 25, tomorrow Proverbs 26, etc. When the calendar rolls over next week and it's November 1st, we'll read Proverbs 1. Um, but we're, we're doing those two in conjunction because we discovered that James is all about action. James is all about practical wisdom, putting things into practice, and so it's kind of the New Testament parallel to the book of Proverbs. So that's why we're reading those in conjunction together. So just like we did last week, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. We're going to read through James chapter 2 together. And so as we go through these verses, I'm going to ask you to read this aloud with me because I don't want you to just hear my words. I want you to wrestle with, I want you to grab a hold of God's Word for yourselves. And of course, screen's flashing, but so we're going to hope that this stays up there. Go ahead and put James 1-1 one, one up for us please. All right, James 1.1 says, my brothers and sisters, when believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, Love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Halfway there, guys. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? 
Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Last verse, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we stand in honor of your word. We thank you that has been passed down to us, that you have entrusted it to us. God, we ask that our three goals would be evident in our midst today. God, that we would be able to look intently into the book of James. God, that you, by your spirit, would enable us to continue looking intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, God. But mostly, we ask for goal number three, Lord, that you would empower us to do what your word says. God, if there's anything in us that does not line up with your word, God, we ask that you would reveal it to us today. Convict us, challenge us, encourage us, and empower us to live up to your best for our lives. We thank you for what you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Look at somebody and say you're a good reader. Then you can have a seat. There you go. When I was in high school, I, uh, I guess I was a nerd. I made really good grades. Um, I was actually voted most likely to succeed and won a National Merit Scholarship and all kinds of other nerdy stuff. Uh, and, and so I was in AP classes. I was in, like, the highest level classes. And my junior year is when I took my first AP class. It was AP English. And we had a school. I was in North Carolina. And in our school, you were not allowed to leave school for lunch. Like, you couldn't leave premises. Once you got to school, you had to stay on the premises. And that was the rule all through. And then my junior year, I discovered in my AP English class that the other smart kids would leave during lunch, and they'd go to Arby's, or they'd go to McDonald's, or they'd go to Wendy's, or they'd go somewhere. And I remember asking this girl, Shannon, because she, she was, like, coming back to class with McDonald's. I was like, how did you go to McDonald's? And she's like, Mr. well, like, we called him Connie Mac, our principal. She said, Connie Mac doesn't care as long as you're smart. They're not going to enforce the rules. And I was like, shut up. She's like, no, I promise. We do this every day. And so my junior year, I started becoming a lawbreaker. Uh, I started leaving and going for lunch every day, pretty much every day, my junior year and my senior year. Now, I spent a lot more money doing this, which was really foolish. Um, it was sin because I was still breaking the rules, but it was true. In fact, one time we actually were seen 
eyeballs on us, coming back in with Arby's by our principal. And he kind of laughed and he kind of saluted and that was it. Like this was an open secret in our school. And there were people who were suspended who didn't make great grades, who were suspended for going just around the corner to the gas station. He played favorites. Now, when you're on the side of being the favorite, it's awesome. I'm not going to lie. Like, we loved it. I did not hate my principal at that point in my life. But if you're on the other side of playing favorites, and how many of us have been there? Man, maybe as a, as a child, maybe you felt like your parents favored one of your siblings. Maybe you feel like at work that your boss favors a coworker. Maybe you feel like in some situation in life, a teacher, uh, some authority figure, or just a group of people continues to overlook you. Like you just can't quite get recognized. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you're never quite good enough. When you're in that situation, favoritism hurts. It stinks. None of us are a fan of favoritism when we're on the negative side of it. The book of James comes right out in chapter 2 and confronts this. He says in verse 1, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. What's he saying? He's saying if you're a Christian, if you wear the name of Jesus, this is not an option for us. It's not okay for us to live in favoritism. And over the next few verses, he's going to use financial favoritism as his illustration, as his example. He's going to con directly confront favoritism in God's churches for those who have money over those who do not. But I believe that we're going to see these next few verses have application into other types of favoritism as well, whether that favoritism is based on age or gender or race, or ethnicity, many times God's people fall victim to the same things that culture falls victim to, and we give ourselves over to favoritism. Almost every single commentary that I read on James chapter 2 says that James is actually making a connection here between God's nature and ours, and his appeal to saying, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, he's noting the fact or implying the fact that our glorious Lord Jesus Christ himself does not show favoritism. Aren't you glad that he doesn't show favoritism? Aren't you glad that God is no respecter of persons, that no matter your past, no matter your wealth, no matter your family, no matter your status, all you have to do is come to him. All you have to do is repent of your sins and give your life to him. And he's going to take us no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter how much money we have, he does not show favoritism. In fact, four times in the New Testament, this word here in Greek that is used for favoritism uh, is used in an application to God and says that God does not play favorites, that that is not who he is and it is not what he does. Verse 2 goes on to say, suppose a man comes into your meeting, specifically it refers to our times at church, to the church context, but certainly applies to our daily lives as well. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. Make a note right here, the gold ring. In the Jewish culture, and remember, James is writing specifically to Jews. This is very, very early in the New Testament era before it was actually fully known that God was going beyond the Jews to the Gentiles, that Jesus was for all of us. So James, at the very beginning of his letter, he declares, hey, I'm writing this to Jewish Christians. Now, we know it applies to all of us, but the context here is very Jewish. And so he says someone comes in wearing a gold ring. Well, in the Jewish culture, a gold ring didn't just mean that you had money. It didn't just mean that you were married. A gold ring symboled authority. 
The, the ring was the symbol of authority. In fact, it would have uh, a logo on it, an insignia that you would use to press a document. And that document would indicate that, that you signed it, that you were, you were authorizing this transaction. And so only, only the wealthy, only the significant, only the noble, only the powerful would have that gold ring. And so he says, you know, if, if in our context, if a dude comes in wearing a gold ring, you're like, okay, well, he's probably married. Uh, that's, you know, kind of our first assumption. But in their context, that ring meant there was power here. There's authority here. And so he says, if someone comes in with this gold ring and these fine clothes uh, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in, he says, if you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, hey, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you can stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with early, or with, excuse me, with evil thoughts? Now, in our context, it's hard to imagine this, right? Like, I've never been to a church where, where somebody came in with dirty clothes and was like, okay, you can stand in the corner or have a seat on the floor. Like, every church I've ever been to, everybody, there was a seat made available for you no matter your status. Uh, but I think there are other ways that we do this. I think there are other, you know, we've, we've moved beyond making poor people sit on the floor, God forbid. But there are ways that we can show favoritism Ourselves. Now remember, this is the early, early church context where this is written. Uh, in fact, Bible scholars believe that this was written t- less than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, as early as 12 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So when you think about that, it's kind of shocking to me that favoritism had already become an issue. Right? Like, like, I think that you would think, man, after Jesus died and rose again, man, people would get it. Like, they would have it right. They would be passionate followers of him. We saw somebody come back from the dead. We're not going to worry about material things. Right? Like, we, we would move beyond that, you would think. But already, just a mere 12 to 20 years after Jesus, this was already fleshing out to such a degree that as James writes this letter to the churches in the surrounding areas, he feels like it has to be addressed across the church spectrum. That across the geographical spectrum, it's not just an issue in one church. It's an issue that pops up everywhere, this financial favoritism. Why is that? Because I think it's easy to favor the rich. I think it's human nature. I think it's our default in many cases. And if we're not careful, it becomes the default in the church context as well. Why? Rich people have money. Guess what? Ministry takes money. Renting a building takes money. Keeping lights on takes money. Paying ministry or ministers takes money. And so the early mistake that the church was already making 12 years after Jesus is they're beginning to show favoritism to the people that have money over the people who don't. So what happens for us if we're not careful churches or our church will cater to the people who have means, to the people who have money and will ignore or mistreat those who do not. I think this actually can flesh out in two specific areas. Number one, obviously, it, it fleshes out in ignoring and mistreating the poor. Excuse me, but it also fleshes out, and many times in many places, in ignoring and mistreating kids, uh, because kids don't have money. Uh, and, and so I actually served under a pastor in Tulsa, Oklahoma, named Pastor Willie George. And, and Pastor George was passionate about putting his money into, into kids. We were going to put money into children's ministry and into youth ministry. And when he first started doing this in the late 80s, nobody else was doing it. It's a lot more common now. A lot of churches have, have caught up to this. But when he started doing it, people were like, you're crazy. 
You're never going to be able to sustain this. You're never going to be able to continue to put so much budget into children's ministry and youth ministry because those people don't have money. And you know what he said, and this is what he taught us as his staff, and I'm so grateful that I sat under his ministry. This was his famous quote. He says, when you go after the people who can't pay you back, God will. We're not going to prioritize the people who can give the most in the offering. We're not going to go after the people who are going to benefit the church the most. We're going to go after the people that God loves, and that's everybody. And we're going to prioritize even sometimes the people that other churches aren't going after because maybe they've got some misplaced priorities. So maybe we're going to have a greater emphasis on reaching the poor. Maybe we're going to have a greater emphasis on reaching children and reaching youth. Why? Because we believe that God will pay us back. Because our faith stretches beyond somebody's paycheck. Our faith stretches beyond recognizing this person has a good job or that person lives in a good house, therefore they have value and significance. Our faith goes to the place that says, you know what, everyone is created in the image of God and everyone has dignity and Jesus died for us all and so he's called us to reach them all, no matter their position in life. Something that we're very passionate about here at City Church, we have a ministry called Mission OB and Leonard Cochran is our Mission OB director. Put your hand up high for me, Leonard. Leonard actually just took this ministry over here in the last couple months, and he's getting ready to do his first full-scale outreach with it. And so next month, Sunday, November 22nd, you can mark your calendar now. That afternoon, we're going to be doing what's an annual tradition here. Uh, there's a, a community right across the street called Candlelight Estates, and there's quite a few people in Candlelight Estates that are in rough situations financially. And so we're going to take them Thanksgiving meals. And so what we do, and I don't know, this is like our sixth, seventh year of doing this, something like that, pretty much the whole time we've been in OB. But what we do is as a church, we pay for all the sides. We, we get like five, six sides together, seven sides, put together a package for everybody, and then we give you guys the opportunity. We say, hey, here's how many homes we're, we're reaching out to this year. This is how many turkeys we need. And our church bands together, and we bring in frozen turkeys that Sunday morning. Um, so we're going to have that number for you hopefully by next Sunday, uh, definitely by the Sunday after that, and let you know how many. But go ahead and, and start carving out 15, 20 bucks, setting it aside so you can get a turkey together, carve out that afternoon of Sunday the 22nd. We're also going to do, in conjunction with that, a, another clothing giveaway. For whatever reason, God has just see, seen fit to bless our church that people just continue to give us clothes. Man, I, I cannot believe for the size church we are, this is, I think, the 10th or 11th clothing giveaway we've done in the last three years. Like, it's crazy how, how I, I thought we'd do it one time, we'd get rid of all the clothes, and then we'd move on. But it, it just keeps recycling. Somehow, man, God just says, you know what, this is your niche. You're going to bless people who don't have anything. Uh, so we're going to be doing a clothing giveaway. We're going to be advertising to, to some of the lower-income neighborhoods and putting it out on Craigslist and letting people know that, hey, we've got some free clothes for you. Uh, why? Because everybody matters. Everybody matters. We're not going to show favoritism. We believe that, that God cares about the last the least, and the lost. And if God cares about the last, the least, and the lost, then we should care about the last, the least, and the lost. So I encourage you, man, keep that date open on your calendar. Like I said, set aside 15, 20 bucks to get a turkey. Maybe you're, you're in a better situation, and you can get more than one turkey. I know we've had people bring as many as 10 before. Uh, maybe God puts that on your heart. You know what, I'm, I'm going to take care of a few families because God has blessed us, and out of our blessing, we are going to bless others. I believe the more that we go after the, the poor, the downtrodden, the overlooked, the oppressed, the closer we are to the heart of God. And the more that God is going to reward and bless us. Because when we go after the people that can't pay us back, God will. Amen? I've seen this flesh out in other ways 
in churches. When, when I was young in Seattle, I think I was about 12, 13 years old when this first really started to flesh out. But we were at a church. Um, it was a good church. I'm, I'm very grateful for that church. It's actually the church that I first got involved in youth ministry and really got excited for God. And the first church where, where God began to use me and, and really started to even begin to wrestle with my calling for God at this church. But this church had one major flaw, in my opinion. Uh, there was one family in the church that was loaded. And that's every pastor's dream, right? Like, you want that one loaded family, so I'm not just, like, knocking the church. But they had one church that, that was millionaire, uh, one family. And this millionaire family controlled everything. Uh, the, the pastor would tell you behind the scenes, hey, I don't like that this happens. This isn't what, ha- this isn't what should happen. This isn't what the Bible says. But because Brother Harold wanted it to be done this way, that's why we did it that way. And this went on for years. In fact, that family, when we left, that family had been in the church for 50 years. Uh, so they had deeply entrenched their roots. And obviously they were financing things, and obviously God was using them. And I'm not trying to knock them. I'm sure Brother Harold's in heaven today. And, man, I, I know that he's at the feet of Jesus, and I'm sure that he's seen the error of his ways. But it was sad to me at, a, at an early age to recognize that his financial wherewithal purchased him influence. That he got to have things done the way that he wanted just because he had money. When I came here very early in my ministry career as a, as a youth pastor, under Pastor Jason who started this church, I remember there was uh, a new individual who came to our church, and he was loaded. In fact, very similar situation to Harold. And, and he hadn't really started giving yet, but of course, you know, you know when somebody's got money. And so uh, I remember he actually initiated a meeting with Pastor Jason, and he's like, hey, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but I, I can make a lot of your dreams come true. A lot of the vision in your heart for this church, I, I can help make that happen. But here's three things that need to change about the church if I'm going to start to give. And Pastor Jason looked him in the eye and he said, the vision is not for sale. That guy didn't stay at our church very long. He never gave to our church. But you know what? For me as a young youth pastor, that was such an incredible testimony, such an awesome encouragement. That you know what? The vision's not for sale. We're going to do what God's called us to do, and we're not going to sacrifice that on the altar of, of money. We're not going to sacrifice that on the altar of somebody having some influence, having some finances. Now, obviously, we, we want people who are blessed. We want to see our people blessed. We want to see people continue to, to grow in their finances, but we're not going to put the vision for sale. And I'm so glad that I had that example at a very early time in my ministry career. Now, most of you in this room, you're never going to be in that position. You're never going to sit across from somebody who says, hey, I can make this church work if you change these things. That's not the role that God has given you in the kingdom of God. But let's get into some practical application for the everyday believer. How are some ways that we play favorites? Here's one. Hey, I just found out this family's got a boat. We should become friends with them, right? Hey, so-and-so, they got a pool. We need to have them over for lunch. Uh, right? Like, we do these things, don't we? We find out somebody's got this toy, somebody's got this thing, and all of a sudden, they're more significant to us. All of a sudden, they move up our priority list, and this dishonors both the poor and the rich. Because for the poor, it says you're not as important as somebody who has money, but for the rich, it says you're only important because you have money. It's dishonoring their value that God gave them and saying your man-given significance is more important. 
And so we've got to be careful. We've got to check ourselves. We've got to evaluate our motives. Am I saying if somebody has a pool or has a boat that you shouldn't be friends with them? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying be friends with them anyway, Whether even when they sell the boat. Because everybody who has a boat ends up selling their boat one day. Man, when that day comes, still be friends with them. Don't just use them for the things that they have, and, and James uses specifically clothes to illustrate this, right? Like the outward appearance. And he talks even a little bit about hygiene. He says if a poor person in filthy clothes comes in, you ignore them or you put them in the corner or you put them on the floor. And maybe for us, maybe we don't prioritize somebody because they've got the pool or they've got the boat or they've got the Xbox or whatever it is that that thing is that we want access to. But maybe it is like, well, so-and-so doesn't really smell good. So-and-so's got some body odor. So-and-so's got some issues. And so we kind of keep a safe distance. And maybe we're friendly to them and we say, hey, but, but we keep them at arm's length. And God says, don't play favorites. Man, you've got to recognize the value in everybody. Continuing on in James chapter 2, verse 5 says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, it's not God chosen. Those are poor who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to whom you belong? If we just isolated these three verses, we'd get the idea really quick that God doesn't like rich people. Right? Like you get the idea if you've got means that, wow, God is against me. God is not for me. And so we got to be careful not to just isolate these. And so James gives us some context in the very next verse that helps us to understand what he's really speaking to here. Verse 8, he says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and he appeals to the Old Testament, to the Levitical law, he goes to Leviticus 19, says, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you are doing right. What's the beauty of love your neighbor as yourself? It doesn't discriminate. Love your neighbor as yourself doesn't prioritize somebody if they have money, and it doesn't prioritize somebody if they don't. Love your neighbor as yourself doesn't prioritize somebody if they're African-American or they're Asian-American or they're Hispanic or they're white. Love your neighbor as yourself prioritizes everyone, no matter their color, no matter their gender, no matter their place in life, whether they're young or whether they're old, whether they're rich or whether they're poor, whether they're healthy or whether they're sick, whether they're disabled, it doesn't matter. Love your neighbor as yourself says everyone matters. Jesus died for all. So James is not telling us to hate rich people. James is telling us to love rich people, but not because they're rich. Love them because God created them. Love them because Jesus died for them. Love them because God has a place and a purpose for them, but don't love them because of what they have or what they can do for you. So it's all about the motives that James is speaking to. Verse 9, he says, but if you show favoritism, you sin. Let me just make sure that you understand this. I've spoken against favoritism for eight verses, but if you haven't gotten it yet, let's just put it in black and white. Favoritism is sin. And you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now he's going to teach us some principles about sin and as, about breaking the law. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. What's James doing here? He's putting us all on the same level. He's saying as humans, we like to rank our sin, right? Well, gossip's not really that bad, and everybody does it, so gossip's better than looking at pornography. But, but pornography, at least you're not cheating, so it's better than adultery. And adultery, at least you're not killing anybody, so it's better than murder. Like, we have this ranking system in our heads for sin, right? 
And we think, well, hey, as long as I'm high on the list, like, of course I've got sin, but as long as my sin's high on the list, I'm okay. And James says, no, that's not how it works. If you've broken one, you've broken it all. Why? Because all sin separates me from God. Whether it's sin that people see and they look down on, or whether it's sin that people see and they approve of, or it's sin that nobody knows about. But me and God, all my sin separates me from him. He's not saying that gossip is as bad as murder to the damage that it does. Obviously, murder is worse because it ends a life. But he's saying it's the same in the way that it separates me from God. See, I need a savior no matter what my sin is, no matter what level I think it's at. My sin is so bad that God says, I can't have you in my midst because I'm holy and I'm righteous. And the only way I can get to God is to be covered in the perfect blood of Jesus and to have my sins washed away. So James, he's addressing discrimination, and then he just puts us all on the same level. I don't care what your sin is. You're just like the person next to you. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. We all need Jesus. Verse 11, or excuse me, verse 12 and 13, he wraps up this theme on judgment or on favoritism. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So in all my relationships and in all of yours, we must constantly be aware that we need mercy. I need mercy. Look at somebody next to you and say, I need mercy. We all need mercy. If I can stay constantly aware of my need for mercy, that keeps me from looking down at the people who hurt me. If I can constantly aware of my need for mercy, it becomes a lot easier for me to extend forgiveness and mercy to others. But if I forget my need for mercy, if I think that I'm right with God because of my own good, because of my own righteousness, then when you mess up, when you cut me off on the road, well, I'm going to have something to say for you, right? Like, I'm, I might have to honk to cover up what I say, but I'm going to have something to say, right? Like, when somebody does something to me, I feel like they've violated something, that there's something wrong with them, and I look down on them when somebody hurts me. But when I'm constantly aware of my need for mercy, it's a lot easier for me to pass it on. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, quit judging people, quit looking down on people, quit ranking your sin and thinking yours is better for them, because you need to constantly be aware that you need a Savior. Constantly be aware that you need Jesus. So this brings us to verse 14, and we take a new theme here. The first the half of this chapter breaks evenly into speaking about favoritism and discrimination. And the second half is going to speak on what I think is the ultimate theme of the book of James. We've said it multiple times already. James is all about that action. That's what he is speaking to. He's all about putting faith into action. And so now he, he takes a step back for the next 13 verses, and he's going to really expound on this. He's really going to unpack this idea of action, that the things that I believe don't, shouldn't just affect the fact that I go to church or not, but it should actually affect the way that I live. It should actually, if I actually believe in Jesus, there should be some evidence of that on Monday at work and on Tuesday night at home and on Friday night at the party. And whatever else I do throughout the week, it should actually be demonstrated in the way that I live. He starts out in verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. We see James cares a lot about the poor. Again and again, he's working it in, even in a different theme. He wants to again address the fact that, man, we need to be helping those who have little. He says, suppose one of you is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? 
What's he saying? Put this into a modern American English. He says, put your money where your mouth is. If you say you care about the poor, then you need to put some action behind that. Don't just wish them well and pat them on the shoulder and say, I hope it gets better. Put your money where your mouth is. Put your time where your mouth is. Put your treasure where your mouth is. Put your talent where your mouth is. Use something that God has given you to help improve their situation. Verse 17, it says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Ouch. It's dead. See, I want a living, breathing faith. I want a faith that is life-giving. I want a faith that is evidenced in my daily life. I want a faith that is powerful. And James says that the only way that's possible, the only way that my faith is alive, the only way that it's making a difference, the only way that I'm like Jesus and life-giving is when my faith crosses over from the quote-unquote spiritual realm into the physical realm. When my faith crosses over from my prayer closet into my relationships. When my faith crosses over from Sunday morning at church into Monday afternoon at work. When my faith crosses over from, from whatever situation that I spend time with God in, my devotional life, and actually intersects in my relationships. Now, I'm not saying that going to church doesn't matter. I'm not saying that reading the Bible doesn't matter. I'm not saying that praying doesn't matter. It absolutely does. But it does because when it's real and it's genuine, it's going to empower me to live differently. The vertical always sets up the horizontal. And so if I'm right with God, if I'm truly in love with God, if I'm truly singing, my heart is yours, if that's really the song of my heart and not just the song on a screen, it's going to affect the way that I interact with others. He says, faith without works is dead. There's no evidence of it. Verse 18, he continues. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. It's not enough to just believe in God. The worst creatures in all of creation believe in God. The ones who are furthest from him in all the universe believe in God. It's not enough for me to just say, God, I know that you're there. That's the starting point. And it's good, and we need to believe that, but it's got to cross over beyond just believing that he exists. James says, the demons in hell have the right beliefs. Your beliefs don't impress me. Show me your actions. Show me your beliefs that actually translate into your life. He goes on, verse 20, he says, you foolish person. I told you, James is not, you know, Mr. Encouragement sometimes. Like, he just kind of beats us up a little bit, but sometimes we need that person who loves us enough to beat us up. Right, who loves us enough to get in our face. And so he says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. That, that's, that's like, if you've got your Bible open, that's the phrase to underline right there. That's what this is all about. He's not exalting action over faith. He's not saying you can earn your way into heaven. Don't misunderstand that at all. He's not saying that if you just get everything right, God's going to love you, God's going to accept you, God's going to be for you. you. God's acceptance of you and his love for you has nothing to do with what you do. What he is saying is when you truly know him, when you truly have faith in him, it's going to intertwine. With your actions. So he says, Abraham's faith and his actions were working together. I want that to be my epitaph. 
I want that to be said about me one day. That Troy's faith and his actions worked together. That his faith was strong. That he believed God for big things. And he put it into action. He put it into practice. What an incredible statement about Abraham. It says, his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. So we can infer from that that faith without action is incomplete. There's something missing. And so when I allow my faith to transpire into action, it begins to complete the process. Verse 23, it says, the scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called. He's called what? I am a friend of God. I won't sing anymore. Um, Right? I'm a friend of God. What a cool statement. What a great thing to be called. He says not only did Abraham have some faith, not only did Abraham have some action, but he was God's friend. I love that. How can me, a sinful, mortal creation, be friends with the sinless, perfect creator? Well, it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But God would call me his friend. I don't believe I'm worthy to be God's friend. But I don't believe what I think matters. Because God says you're worthy to be my friend. And so he brings me in and he calls me friend just as he did with Abraham and just as he does for you when you receive Jesus and that sacrifice. Verse 24, he says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute Stay focused on me, guys, as the worship team comes down. Stay focused on this word here. In the way, same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Here's what I believe God would say as we wrap up today. I believe God would present the question, the possibility, I believe, even the likelihood that there's some dead faith in this room. That there's someone in this room, one of us, who verse 14 through 26, that, that's about us. That we have faith, but we don't have works right now. That, that our faith is dead. What I mean by dead faith is faith that is dormant, faith that is stale, faith that is not doing anything. You see, living faith, living things grow. Living things move, they progress, they change. And many times as Christians, we get to a point where we're stale, where we're stagnant, where we're not moving forward. And I believe that means that our faith is dying. I don't think that it ever actually dies. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. What I'm saying is that you, you lose that bit of wonder, that bit of awe, that bit of desire, that my heart is yours, my heart is yours, that I surrender all mentality that, that we all have when we come to Jesus. And it just kind of becomes routine and it becomes ordinary and it becomes plain. Living things grow, they reproduce, they produce fruit. If we're alive, if our faith is alive, that's what should be happening in our life. Perhaps some of you in here used to believe God for big things in your life. Some of you in here, perhaps you used to believe that God was great, that God was going to do something incredible through you. Maybe you used to believe that God would use you to touch your family. 
You've got family members who are far from God and you used to pray, God, use me. God, help me to touch them. You used to plan different ways that you could show them the love of Jesus, different ways that you could set up a conversation where you could speak into their life and tell them about the incredible things that he's done in your life. And maybe for you, that faith has grown stale. Maybe for you, after months or years or even decades of reaching out to that person, you just feel like it's useless. It's just not going to happen. And so your faith has started to flicker. It started to diminish. It started to die. It's grown cold. If we were honest, looking in from the outside, we'd say that faith looks dead. Some of you in here, perhaps you used to trust God in your finances. You used to believe that God was bigger than your bills. You used to believe that God's promise was greater than life's problems. And then you lost a job, or you missed a paycheck, or you got sick, or you fell out of church, or whatever happened in life, and now you're beginning to trust in yourself and not in Him. You don't have that generosity. You're not giving like you once did. You're not tithing. You stopped trusting God in your finances, and your faith has grown cold. And if we had time, we could play this out in 17 different directions. We could play this out in your marriage. We could play it out in your parenting. We could play it out in your career, in your hurts, your habits, your hangups, your time, your talent, your treasure. But perhaps there's someone in this room that if you were real honest, you look at your life and you say, I used to believe God in this area of my life. I used to believe him to break this addiction. I used to believe him that I could overcome this sin, but it's just been too long and nothing's changed. And I feel like, man, this is just who I am. This is just where I'm going to be. I want to challenge you today that we serve a God who still raises the dead. We serve a God who still breathes. And I dare you to believe that he can breathe life back into that faith. That he can breathe life back into that area, back into that family, back into that relationship, back into your finances, back into your health, back into your witnessing, back into your calling. I believe that we serve a God that raises the dead. And just because your faith in this area might be dead today doesn't mean it has to be dead tomorrow. So I encourage you today to lean in, to trust God that if there is an area of your life that your faith has grown stale and grown cold and maybe even gone dead, that it doesn't have to stay that way. That you can believe him to, through his spirit to breathe new life into that faith and that that's going to happen simply by putting that faith into action. You see, the way to jumpstart faith is to begin to exercise it. The beginning to jumpstart faith is to step out in faith, is to get out of the boat like Peter did. Man, Peter didn't wait for it to be zapped by this great feeling that, hey, I can walk on water. He said, you know what? Jesus said it, so I'm getting out of the boat. And that brought his faith to life. And so my challenge for you, my encouragement for you today is whatever area God's speaking to you, whatever area your faith has grown cold, this week, do number three in our goals. Put his word into action. Step out, and as you put action behind that faith that you maybe once had, or maybe you never even had, maybe there's an area that you want to have faith for, but you never have, step out in faith, begin to put action behind it, and you're going to discover that faith begins to come alive. That flame begins to burn once again. You're going to see the wind comes into those sails behind that faith as you step out and you trust it. Would you pray with me this morning?